You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to have a balance of sorts. We're going to have desserts and healthy eating. <laughs> I think they go together well. We're going to start off with the desserts because life is short. Uh, apple and cheddar scones. This is pretty much October on a parchment lined baking sheet. They want to be packed in a basket so they can go apple picking with you and sneak in the car to join you for a leaf peeping drive. They want to come to brunch with you and deserve to be served with warm apple cider, whether getting lost in a corn maze or searching for the best pumpkin to carve. Have we spoken this week? If we have, I've probably gone on and on about them, about how I never really was into that whole apple cheddar thing. But these, these change things. They're absolutely fantastic. They're from The Perfect Finish, which is a dessert cookbook by Bill Yossis, who is now the executive pastry chef at the White House, but not when he wrote this. And Melissa Clark, who I suspect you're already fond of, when I first saw this recipe, I rejected it as fussy for making you roast apples in one sixteenths. Just to let this stand mixer bang them up, I snorted over how chefs always like to boast that their recipes are fairly simple for home cooks, but then use weights measured in one hundredth of an ounce, fooling nobody. Then I made them, and I shut up because these are blissful. Just a sweet with a shaggy sugar lid, a not-too-intensely cheddar background with random chunks of baked apples throughout. All that in a scone. Oof! I'm obsessed and about to make my third batch because I don't think I'll be able to go anywhere this weekend without some fresh from the oven. Apple and cheddar scones. Here's the recipe. This is barely tweaked from the perfect finish. This makes six generous scones. You're going to need two firm tart apples one and a half cups of all-purpose flour, one quarter cup of sugar plus one and a half tablespoons for sprinkling, one half tablespoon of baking powder, one half teaspoon of salt plus additional for egg wash, six tablespoons of unsalted butter chilled and cut into one half inch cubes plus additional for baking if not lining it with parchment, one half cup of sharp cheddar shredded white is recommended, I assume for aesthetics, and one quarter cup of heavy cream, two large eggs. You're going to position a rack at the center of the oven and preheat your oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Line the baking sheet with parchment paper. Peel and core the apples, then cut them into one sixteenths. I assume this meant chunks, not slivers. Place them in a single layer on a baking sheet lined with parchment paper and bake them until they take on a little color and feel dry to the touch about 20 minutes. They will be about half baked. Let them cool completely and you can speed this up in the fridge as I did and then leave your oven on. You're going to sift or whisk flour, sugar, baking powder, and salt together and set aside. Place the butter in the bowl of an electric mixer with a paddle attachment, along with the cooled apple chunks, cheese, cream, and one egg. Sprinkle the flour mixture over the top and mix on low speed until the dough just comes together. Do not overmix. 
So if you don't have a stand or hand mixer, I'd rub the cold butter into the flour mixture with my fingertips or with a pastry blender and hand chop the apples coarsely and mix the rest together with a wooden spoon until combined. It might feel awkward, but it should all come together. Again, don't overmix it though. It'll be harder to do this by hand. So generously flour your countertop and place the scone dough on top of it. Sprinkle with flour. Use a rolling pin to gently roll or use your hands to pat the dough into a one and a quarter inch thick six inch circle. Cut the circle into six wedges. Transfer them to a baking sheet that has either been buttered or lined with a fresh sheet of parchment paper and leave at least two inches between each scone. Beat the remaining egg in a small bowl with a pinch of salt and brush the scones with egg wash and sprinkle them with the remaining tablespoon of sugar. Bake until firm and golden, about 30 minutes. Yum, I love scones. And with a spatula, lift them to a wire rack to cool for 10 minutes. Before you eat one, make sure you realize how addictive they might be. Once you've got that down, go for it anyway. As far as doing ahead, scones are best the day they are baked. However, they can be made ahead of time and stored unbaked in the freezer until you need them. Simply brush them with egg wash and sprinkle them with sugar and bake them still frozen for just a couple of extra minutes. This way, they are always freshly baked when you want them. These scones were passable on day two and terrible on day three. That's a sad, sad note. We're going to stay in the, the sweet zone. Mom's chocolate chip meringues. This is one of my favorite things. I don't know why. It's super simple, super yummy. It only took us over a year, but Alex and I finally had dinner at Tia Pole, a closet-sized gem of a tapas restaurant on 10th Avenue on Saturday night. We lived so close, it's embarrassing that we hadn't eaten there yet. But the thing with the proximity is that every time we've popped our heads in, taken note of the mob of people crushed against the entryway and the at least an hour and a half wait, we've rationalized that we'll go another time, later. Well, six months had passed since our last later, when on Saturday, so we decided arriving at the criminally early hour, 6 p.m., would outsmart the crowds. The laugh was still on us, but the 45 minutes were well worth the wait, the tight space, not claustrophobic, but cozy on a freezing night as we snuggled into a row of coats while drinking our first, then second, mon dieu, glass of their delicious sangria. At the bar, we couldn't resist trying one of almost everything. Marcona almonds, potatoes with aioli and hot paprika, ham-wrapped artichoke hearts with manchego cheese, deep-fried spicy chickpeas, and thick, fork-tender white asparagus stalks, again with that blessed aioli. By last night, it had been a whole two days since our last dose of aioli, and we needed a fix. Alex grabbed some white asparagus, red potatoes, and salad greens on his way home, and I began mincing garlic for the sauce. Oh, how easy dinner will be, I thought. And now you see where this is going. The first aioli started out splendidly, but at some point near the end, when you start drizzling the olive oil more confidently, it's spilt, and if there's one thing that's impossible to fix, it's a broken mayonnaise. Frustrated as heck, I didn't want to associate mayonnaise making with failure and unhappiness, and I forced myself to make another, this time in the food processor. 
I've seen Emeril make this his there in there often. Say whatever you want about the man. He always makes his mayo from scratch. And hey, isn't that what the little drip spout is for? The batch not only didn't break, it didn't come together at all. Four egg yolks, two cups of good olive oil, 12 cloves of garlic, and any remaining joy I had had towards cooking that night went right in the trash. I was ready to write the evening off completely. Never happened. Nobody needs to know. Let's not dwell on these failures, okay? But I still had those four egg whites, and I got clingy, unable to part with another ingredient. So growing up, we only did one thing, and the one thing only with leftover egg whites. We made mom's chocolate chip meringue cookies. They're absurdly easy to make, have a wonderfully high chip-to-cookie ratio, and so few ingredients you can count them on one hand and one toe. They look deceivingly plush. It's only when you reach for them that you realize that they're lighter than air, and if you gently tap your nail against the exterior, it sounds like a ping-pong ball. They taste like marshmallows when you just out of the oven, but the next day when they actually dissolve in your mouth, leaving you with little bits of nuts and chocolate chips to ponder, rarely I dare you not to love them. To make them once and to not immediately tuck them into your permanent repertoire or to ever be able to throw away an unused egg white again. Frankly, if you're looking for a little, oh, you shouldn't have for your office, honey or office honey on Wednesday, I can't imagine a more impressive reward for you five minute, your five minutes of cooking labor. They're light and crisp enough that you shouldn't feel too weighted to do anything besides take a nap after dessert. If you're still searching for that romantic homemade dinner or dessert and meringues are not your bag, here are a few more things I can't get enough of and there's links to moulet la marinere and pomme, baked pommes frites braised beef short ribs, coco vin, tomato and sausage risotto, and hoisin glazed pork riblets, links on smittenkitchen.com. However, if you're like me and nothing screams romance like a meal that doesn't make you feel like pudgy the whale when you're done, and some lighter notes, there's other links to Balthazar cream of mushroom soup, silky cauliflower soup, Caesar salad, asparagus, artichoke, and shiitake risotto, quiche, either spinach or mushroom leek, wild mushroom, and Stilton galette. When it comes to dessert, I wouldn't know where to start, but rest assured there are plenty of chocolate and non-chocolate edibles in the recipe index on smittenkitchen.com. But here's the recipe for mom's chocolate chip meringue cookies. You'll need two egg whites at room temperature, one quarter teaspoon salt, one eighth teaspoon of cream of tartar, one teaspoon of vanilla, three quarters cups of regular or super fine sugar. I use a bit less, about a half a cup, and they are plenty sweet. Six ounces of chocolate chips, miniature chips, or finely diced semi or bittersweet chocolate. One quarter cup of chopped walnuts or pecans. Toasted first is even tastier. You're going to preheat your oven to 300 degrees Fahrenheit. Beat your egg whites until foamy. Add salt cream of tartar and vanilla, and beat the mixture again until it holds soft peaks. Add the sugar, gradually beating the batter until it is stiff. Fold in the nuts and the chocolate chips, and then spoon the batter onto parchment paper lined baking sheets. Bake for 25 minutes. The undersides of the cookies should be golden or lightly tanned. 
Note, there are two approaches to baking meringues. The shorter cooking time at a higher temperature yields a cookie with a crackly, crumbly exterior and almost hollow center. And a more traditional approach is a longer baking time, 200 degrees for one and a half to two hours. Take the longer baked version out when they are slightly golden and firm to the touch. They will be more soft and fluffy like miniature pavlovas. Good tip. Next, we're going to switch to some actual food <laughs> as much as I love dessert. This recipe from eatingwell.com for chicken and spinach skillet pasta with lemon and parmesan. This one pan chicken pasta combines a lean chicken breast and sauteed spinach for a one bowl meal that's garlicky, lemony, and best served with a little parm on top. I call it mom's skillet pasta and she called it Devin's favorite pasta. Either way, it's a quick and easy weeknight dinner that we created together and scribbled on a little recipe card more than a decade ago, and it remains in my weekly dinner rotation to this day. It's a simple dinner that the whole family will love. How to make chicken and spinach skillet pasta with lemon and Parmesan. This chicken pasta dinner is family-friendly weeknight favorite it's made in just one skillet and cleanup is a breeze. First, you're gonna start the pasta. To get this dinner on the table fast, get the pasta cooking first. We call for penne pasta, but any shape will work. If you have a gluten sensitivity, gluten-free pasta works well here. And if not, using whole wheat pasta will give you a boost of fiber without taking away from the flavor of the dish. Make sure not to overcook the pasta, which can make the dish mushy at the end. Next, you're gonna cook the chicken. While the pasta cooks, start the chicken. You will want a high-sided skillet here or a large pot big enough to hold all of the ingredients. You can use chicken breast or chicken thighs in this recipe. Chicken breast is the better choice if you want a leaner dish with less trimming. Chicken thighs offer a meatier flavor but usually need to be trimmed. And make sure the pieces are cut about the same size so that they cook evenly. As far as finishing the dish, once the chicken is cooked through, you finish the dish by making the sauce. Garlic adds a savory baseline flavor. Wine and lemon juice and zest are added to make the sauce bright and tangy. Bringing the sauce to a simmer helps meld the flavors and gets the pan hot enough to rewarm the pasta with the wilt spinach, which is added at the end. This dish is at its best served right away, sprinkled with Parmesan cheese. Enjoy. For the ingredients, you'll need eight ounces of gluten-free penne pasta or whole wheat penne pasta, two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, one pound of boneless, skinless chicken breasts or thighs, trimmed if necessary and cut into bite-sized pieces, one half teaspoon salt, one quarter teaspoon of ground pepper, four cloves of garlic, minced, one half cup of dry white wine, juice and zest of one lemon, 10 cups of chopped fresh spinach, four tablespoons of grated Parmesan, divided. You're gonna cook the pasta according to the pot package directions and then drain and set aside. Next, while well, you're gonna heat your oil in a large high-sided skillet over medium-high heat. Add chicken, salt, and pepper. Cook, stirring occasionally until just cooked through, five to seven minutes. Add garlic and cook, stirring until fragrant, about one minute. 
Stir in wine, lemon juice, and zest and bring to a simmer. Remove from the heat, stir in the spinach and the cooked pasta, cover and let stand until the spinach is just wilted. Divide among four plates and top each serving with one tablespoon of Parmesan. Then enjoy. Next, back to Smitten Kitchen, we've got a recipe for asparagus and egg salad with walnuts and mint. I found my new favorite spring lunch salad while I was hiding from a pot of brisket, which is the kind of thing that happens three days after Passover. Day one, which is actually day two or three after you've cooked the brisket, because you know I'd never lead you astray, right? Day one is lovely. My goodness, why don't we eat long-cooked saucy slabs of beef more often? Day two isn't so bad either, albeit a touch less enthusiastic. Yay, brisket! Day three is... My God, this isn't natural. Nobody should eat this much brisket. What am I going to do? I cannot waste food. It's too long into the brisket's lifespan to freeze it now, and my thoughts turn to the vibrant green asparagus stalks we'd had with it, and that brisket was instantly relegated to a side dish. I wasn't even a little bit surprised that I'd found inspiration for asparagus in the Six Seasons cookbook. Have you bought it yet? I know this is awfully bossy of me, but I think you should. I think that if you, like me, delight in inventive but not overly complicated vegetable preparations, there's 225 of them even, things you hadn't thought of but what you'll immediately tuck into your repertoire, you're going to love this book as much as I do. I confess I've had it for almost a year, and in that year I've been almost overwhelmed with how much I've wanted to cook from it. A favorite so far has been the comfortable cabbage and farro soup with parmesan and lemon, almost to the point of paralysis, which is as ridiculous of a first world problem as having too much brisket to eat. But here we are, and at least one impasse helped resolve another. So let's talk about this dish. It's been so long since we did an asparagus salad, and only one has been raw. A shame because thinly sliced asparagus is almost sweet and not dry or woozy at all. Previously, I've just ribboned it with a peeler. This is easier, more satisfyingly crisp, and less fragile, too. The original recipe uses breadcrumbs to enhance the crunch, and I skipped them because I pictured this on toast or crackers, but missed them so little I didn't think I'd add them back in, even if eating it straight from the bowl as I am this minute. I added the eggs. I call these medium cooked eggs. Feel free to use fully hard boiled ones if that's what you got idling in your fridge. But I find these more interesting. They're not runny, but they're not fully set or opaque in the center either. They're the amount of tender oasis and a crunchy salad. All of the flavor bits stick to them versus fully hard boiled eggs whose insides crumble and stick to everything else. I was suspicious of the lemon zest and mint, and they are my two favorite parts. Do not skip them at all. Finally, as might already be clear, I didn't wait until asparagus season in New York to try this as Mr. McFadden would have wanted us to. I've given up, just given up. It snowed in April, and again, might before the week is out. And when the asparagus shows up at the market, I'll make it again and realize everything this salad is missing. But right now, when the grocery store is the greenest place I know, I couldn't imagine another more perfect use of what is there. Here's the recipe. Asparagus and egg salad with walnuts and mint. This serves four, takes 15 to 30 minutes. The source is six seasons, a new way with vegetables. 
this is a good place to admit that I'm not a, an asparagus snapper. This idea that the asparagus knows exactly where to snap to separate the tender parts from the woody ends defies what I've experienced, which is that asparagus will snap halfway between your hands no matter where you place them. The asparagus snapping truthers are going to come for me in the comments, and I sure hope they're kind. I like McFadden's suggestion more. Choose one stalk from the bunch and snap or trim it to the right spot, then line up the remaining stalks and cut them to the same point. I believe in toasting nuts anytime that you're going to use them, and especially here. I'm not crazy about grating Parmesan with a microplane zester. I find it yields fluffy clouds that can disappear in food, and they're often half the amount of cheese that you'll need for good flavoring. I have all the unpopular opinions today, I know. You can peel your eggs under running water if needed, but I find when I begin with cold eggs and plunge them into cold water as soon as I want them to stop cooking, the shells come off very easily, and I was delighted to see this backed up by science. So you'll need four large eggs, cold from the fridge, one half cup of grated Parmesan cheese, one half cup of finely chopped, lightly well-toasted walnuts, one teaspoon of finely grated lemon zest, kosher salt and freshly ground black pepper, dried chili flakes, one pound of asparagus, any thickness with the tough ends trimmed, about one quarter cup of fresh lemon juice, one quarter cup of lightly packed fresh mint leaves chopped, one quarter cup of olive oil, preferably extra virgin. Bring a small to medium pot of water to boil, gently lower in the eggs and reduce heat to a simmer. Boil for eight and a half minutes, then quickly transfer the eggs to an ice cold water bath. Leave them there while you prepare the other ingredients, but ideally at least 10 minutes. Place Parmesan, walnuts, and lemon zest in the bottom of a large bowl, along with one teaspoon of salt, many grinds of black pepper, and about one half teaspoon of chili flakes, or more or less to taste. I used half because, you know, I got kids. Stir to combine. Cut the asparagus on a sharp angle into very thin slices and add to the Parmesan mixture. Add one quarter cup of lemon juice and toss some more. Taste and adjust the flavors to your preference by adding more salt, black pepper, chili flakes, or lemon juice. And go a little bit heavy so that the flavors don't disappear once you add the eggs. Add mint and olive oil, toss, and adjust the seasoning again. Peel your cooled eggs, cut in half, then each half into six to eight chunks. Add them to the bowl with asparagus and give it one or two gentle stirs. I didn't want to get them too mashed up here. Eat as it is or scoop onto six to eight toasts or three large matzah sheets, halved into six more manageable toasts. Obviously, this would negate the gluten-free categorization, unless you use gluten-free bread. We'll end with a recipe for easy traditional red sangria. Simple traditional red Spanish sangria made with simple methods is just six ingredients the perfect fruity summer vegetable that's adaptable and delicious. This serves four. It's Spanish-inspired and vegan, and it keeps for about 48 hours. You're going to need one half of a medium apple, cored, skin-on, chopped into small pieces, one half of a medium orange, rind-on, sliced into small pieces, large seeds removed, plus more for garnish, three to four tablespoons of organic brown sugar, or three tablespoons 
of or, uh, organic cane sugar as original recipe is written. Three quarters cups of orange juice plus more to taste. A third cup of brandy plus more to taste. 750 milliliter bottle of dry Spanish red wine and one cup of ice to chill. You're going to add the apples, oranges, and sugar to a large pitcher and muddle with a muddler or wooden spoon for 45 seconds. Add orange juice and brandy and muddle again to combine for 30 seconds. Add red wine and stir to incorporate, then taste and adjust flavor as needed. I added a bit more brandy, orange juice, and brown sugar, and then stir to combine. Add ice and stir once more to chill. Serve as is or with a bit more ice. Garnish with the orange segments. This is optional. You can store the leftovers covered in the fridge for about 48 hours, though it is best when it is fresh. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786 7777.